This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. All right. I'm with Brian Faroli of The Motley Fool, and he's going to join us for an hour-long discussion on his unique stock screening and stock selection system, as well as what areas he's focused on, in particular in healthcare and tech. And I've been following Brian for a while, and I really love his work, and he's produced some really outstanding names in the past. So, Brian, thanks so much for coming on. Brennan, awesome to be here. So before we dive into kind of your strategy and this really cool checklist, give us a background on, you know, kind of who you are, how you got into, um, you know, writing for The Motley Fool and then investing. Uh, sure. Um, so I was, became interested in money in general. Um, I've always been sort of interested in it, but my interest in it really grew uh, after I graduated from college, which was in 2004. I had no idea what I really wanted to do, but I was lucky enough to get uh, into a startup medical device company pretty early in its history, a few years after it was um, founded, just through a, um, a lifelong friend, really. And that just turned out to be sheer luck on my part because that company uh, took off. It's now publicly traded and worth, oh, geez, I think over $10 billion. Wow. Um, so <laughs> not a bad yeah, rate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So sheer luck on my part. But while I was there, I really started to, my dad gave me my first, my first book about money that I'd ever read, which was Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And that was the first book that ever opened up the idea that anybody can become wealthy and that we're all in business for ourselves. Now that book, uh, stressed real estate as the method to get wealthy. Uh, but that really kickstarted my love of learning about investments and personal finance. And from there, I read basically every book and consumed every piece of content on personal finance that I could get. That, of course, led me to read books by like The Motley Fool, which led me to fool.com. I became a paying subscriber and stock investor. Uh, for many, many years. And then in 2015, I was afforded the opportunity to start writing for uh, fool.com. And since it was what I was spending basically all of my free time doing, like I was just like super passionate about uh, investing. Um, it was like a dream come true for me. So I've been doing that for, uh, for just about uh, five years now. So when did, when did you, did you, did you start writing about your investments prior to fool.com or, or were you just, you know, posting your thoughts there once you were a paid subscriber? Yeah. My, the Motley Fool has these wonderful discussion boards, which are just filled with hundreds or even thousands of investors who are extremely knowledgeable about uh, investing, about um, business uh, prospects. They're really good at finding companies about breaking down the risks and, just by going on there and consuming that content as well as posting my own, um, that really 
teaches, taught me so much about what to look for uh, in investments. And then just reading through the Motley Fool's premium content and the way that David and Tom pick stocks and the way that they break it down. And then looking back at their personal track records, uh, really, that was by far the best education that I've ever gotten, uh, period, let alone about uh, in investing. Uh, so just interacting with other smart investors, uh, putting content out there, and then getting feedback uh, is, is invaluable. So what about their strategies? You mentioned David and Tom. What about, what about their strategies in particular that you found yourself lacking in? Maybe it was like this one thing, whether it was assessing risk or just being able to forecast and see an alternate future. Well, in the, in the beginning, I didn't know anything. Like nothing. I didn't, so know how to read a, I didn't know how to read a balance sheet. I didn't know how to read an income statement. I didn't know what margin meant. I didn't know how to assess an opportunity. I just thought that stocks were things that went up and down randomly and you just needed a good story and a low stock price. Um, that's how a lot of people start. That's how, that's how, because none of this is intuitive and none of this is really taught in school. So right. it's really up on, up on to everybody to learn this kind of content on, on themselves. And that's why uh, my mission and my, my career mission is to spread financial wellness. And I'm really into teaching other people the things that I wish I knew when I, when I first started out, because most people don't even know that there's a relationship between how the business performs and its stock price, because hmm. it's completely, those two things are completely detached from each other in the short term. And all we see all day is stock prices moving up and down, and it almost seems random. But if you look at any long-term chart of the markets or successful companies, it's very clear that stock prices go up and to the right. The reason that they go up and to the right is because the businesses that are attached to those stocks grow. They grow their revenue. They grow their profits. They offer more products. They offer more services. And it was really David and Tom that turned me on to that very concept of if you buy into a successful business and that business flourishes, um, then you, the shareholder, will likely be rewarded. And they have preached that for years, but it took a while before I understood how that concept uh, works. But if you go back and look at any successful company, like take Microsoft, for example, that came public in the mid-1980s. And at the time, its, its sales and its profits were you know, only a few million dollars. Fast forward to today, and that's in the tens of billions of dollars yep. uh, in sales. And that's why the company is now worth $1.5 or whatever it is, versus the few hundred million that it was worth uh, a few decades ago. So they were really the ones that instilled in me think for the long term, act like a business owner, invest in great companies that have great futures ahead. Got it. Now, walk us through your personal investment strategy from then until now. So you started really at ground zero and now, now you've discovered this personal investment strategy. You've got this philosophy and we're going to break down this stock system and checklist later, but just on a high level, how would you define your investment strategy right now? Sure. So, um, so I'll there's a, there's a lot in there. Um, so I'm, I'm going to talk specifically about my investing strategy as well as my personal finance philosophy, because those okay, two things perfect. are, are linked uh, at the hip. And that's not something that's talked about a much, uh, much. So when it, in my opinion, personal finances is an order of magnitude more important than your investment finances. You have to be, be a master your personal financial situation. Otherwise your investment uh, investment strategy doesn't matter. You can't invest unless you have money <laughs> to, to invest. Yep. And that come that the foundation of getting that is, is getting your personal finances right. 
so for that reason, I've, I've learned to become extremely conservative with my personal finances. Uh, I have zero, zero debt. We have a very high savings rate. We have a six-month uh, emergency fund, uh, which, again, sounds extremely conservative, and it is. However, that extreme conservatism with my personal finances has allowed me to be extremely aggressive with my investments. Because mm -hmm. of my conservatism with my personal uh, finances, I am essentially immune to volatility. Volatility does not bother me at all. And you, you have to have the capacity to absorb both mentally and financially volatility if you're going to be a successful investor. Um, so that's my general strategy there. Now, when it comes to um, being a quote-unquote uh, uh, aggressive uh, investor, that doesn't mean that I buy high-flying garbage. Um, I actually look for the best opportunities in the market that I can find. And by best opportunities, I mean the best combination of high quality, low risk companies that I can find. And I try and fill my portfolio with as many of those businesses as I can, as I can possibly get. We're going to talk about uh, when I go through my checklist, what I mean by high quality. Yeah. And I believe that the truly high quality businesses are actually low risk. Um, so that is my broad, that, that is my broad strategy for keeping my personal finances extremely conservative. So that way I can be far more aggressive with my investments. I like that idea. And it's something, like you said, it's not talked about much where if you, if you are conservative and if you are saving more, then that is really a function of how much volatility you can take. So if you have a high savings rate, if you have low personal finance risk, you can afford to take and to withstand high volatility and even stretch out that long-term time horizon. I want to I now discuss, we're going to get into, like I said, the checklist and we're going to actually, you know, wait, wait for your best idea or one of, one of your best investments in the past as a precursor to that. But before we do that, let's talk about one of your worst ideas. Well, I know which is always fun to talk about, but what you, you mentioned in your Motley Fool uh, description that one of your worst ideas was the ticker KMI and you played that with options. So it turned out to be, you know, one of your, one of your worst investments. Can you walk us through that process? What, you know, what went wrong and, and what you learned from it? Sure. And, and I've had a bazillion bad ideas and <laughs> I've had tons of bad investments. If you look at my portfolio and my track record and, and, and you only saw that in a vacuum, you, uh, you would think that I have the hand of gold. That's not true at all. I have had, I have owned plenty uh, of losers throughout my history. However, the thing about investing is uh, your losers eventually become irrelevant as long as you hang on to your winners. Because mm -hmm. true winners, uh, my biggest winner of all time is, is Netflix. Uh, I'm, Netflix is more than a 50, 50 bagger uh, for me at, at this point. And the gains that I have from a company like Netflix offset all of my losers throughout history combined. Yeah. And that's just, some, that's just how investing works. But sure, let's talk about my biggest dollar loser of all time. Uh, and that is a company called uh, Kinder uh, Morgan, KMI. They are one of the largest uh, oil and gas pipeline operators in North America. And what really attracted me to this business was it was run by its founder, uh, Rich Kinder, who had a long track record of success. But the thing that I really liked about the business was it didn't make money from, uh, off of the price 
of oil and, and natural gas. It made money by just moving them from one place to another. And it had these take or pay contracts with its customers who primarily were oil and gas companies. So it didn't matter for Kinder Morgan whether the price of oil was high or price of oil was low, theoretically uh, at least. Uh, what mattered was just that there was demand for those products. And as long as they moved through, Kinder Morgan was set up to uh, flourish. Because of that, I thought that the business was essentially bulletproof. I thought that there was essentially no downside. So I made it one of my biggest uh, dollar amount stock, uh, stock positions. In addition, I layered in a bullish option strategy on top of that called a synthetic long. And a synthetic long, you don't need to know the technical terms, but essentially means it's pure leverage, pure leverage. So if the stock goes up, uh, you make money for zero cost. And if the stock goes down, uh, you own all of that downside. However, I was so confident in Kinder Morgan's long-term prospects and these take or pay contracts uh, that I didn't think there, there was any downside. Now, that's what I thought in 2013 and in 2014, 2015, oil prices and natural gas prices cratered. And while Kinder Morgan was technically uh, insulated from that, what I didn't think about was that its customers, aka the people on the other side of those take or pay contracts, mm -hmm. really got hurt. And they had no ability to fulfill their end uh, of the contract. So because of that, Kinder Morgan's financials were eventually impacted by the price of oil, even though it was theoretically insulated from them. So Kinder Morgan's stock price went from like 40 or 45, where I set up these positions, down into the low teens. So it got cut more than in half. And because I had leverage on top of my big stock position, uh, I, I, I took one of my biggest, biggest investment losses uh, ever. That was obviously an extremely painful uh, thing for me, for me to go through. But boy, did I learn a lot about investment by doing that. And the number one thing uh, I learned is that um, companies that are dependent on some outside force that's outside of their control for success, such as oil and gas companies, uh, are highly dependent on the price of those commodities, which they do not control. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that is a huge risk. And since I have no ability to forecast the price of oil and gas stocks, I just avoid the entire sector altogether. So yep. that was a painful lesson to learn, but I think that I'm a better investor now because of it. Yeah. And I was actually just going to ask you, you answered, you answered the question, is that, is that one of those instances where that result was so bad and that, and that loss was so big that you just now avoid any sort of commodity linked business or, you know, anything where they're just a price taker. They're not necessarily a price maker. Exactly. Yes. That's, that's a key point there. Uh, another, another one there. Another, so I'll go through my checklist, but whenever I see, whenever I think through a business and I ask myself, is this business reliant on some external force or the price of some external thing uh, to succeed? If the answer there is yes, I don't invest, period. Yeah. Why, why, why bother when there are so many other companies out there that do not have that extra um, risk associated with them? So for this reason, I don't invest in uh, gold or silver uh, companies. Uh, I don't invest um, in, in banks because banks in a large degree are dependent on interest rates and they have no ability to uh, influence interest rates. So those are a couple examples of sectors that I now just completely avoid because of my experience with Kinder Morgan. Yeah. And now you also avoid them even if they get, so one of the, one of the issues with these types of companies is that sometimes they screen so cheap that a lot of people with a value bent can't help themselves, but try to see the value play in this, where you've got a lot of oil and gas companies that are trading, call it, you know, a third of 
NAV, where you've got banks that are trading half of book value. And so it's, it's, is it, is it one of those where even if the valuation is cheap enough, you just still, you just, nope, I'm not going to touch it. Correct. Yeah. The, 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 there are people that um, know those sectors far better than I do. And they mm-hmm. just have a different risk profile than I do. And if they're cheap, if they're truly that cheap, um, you can probably make a lot of money by, by investing in them now. However, they're not the type of investing that I'm looking for period. Yep. Let's, let's go and dive right in. We're going to spend probably the rest of the time, honestly, discussing this checklist. And for those that haven't read Brian's checklist, it's on the Motley Fool. It's actually, uh, it's a, it's back from 2018, but I'm going to post this link into the show notes. so You can take a look at it. This, this checklist is huge. Like it's a monster checklist and it's, um, it's just, it just got everything that any investor who's starting out or maybe is unsure of where to go and how to value a stock. This is, you know, this is exactly how you should think about a stock. And so what I want to know, Brian, is walk us through this, you know, the first iterations of this checklist and how you ended up developing this thing. Well, when you're a Motley Fool customer, or once you get into like the FinTwit universe, uh, I was quickly bombarded with way more good investing ideas than I had money to buy them. And it became a huge challenge for me to be like, what company do I buy? I mean, everything that gets recommended by The Motley Fool when you read the write-up sounds amazing. Like, it really does. Um, And I was trying to keep all of this information in my head at one time and to be like, well, I really like this about this business, but I don't like this. And I really like this about this other business, uh, but I don't like this. Which one is the better use of my uh, capital today? So finally, I got smart enough to actually write these things down and create a, a, a checklist uh, for myself and just says, what, uh, and ask myself, what are the characteristics that I find most appealing about uh, a potential investment? Um, so I want a company with a wide and, 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 and expanding moat. And a moat just means a competitive advantage over its rivals. I want companies that have organic growth. Organic meaning they grow from products and services that are internally developed as opposed to having to acquire other businesses to buy, to buy growth. I want companies that have a high gross margin. So they're selling something that has a lot of natural profit uh, embedded in it. So if you sell something for $10, I would rather invest in a business that it costs them uh, $1 to produce that thing than $9 to produce that thing. That just gives them a lot more gross profit uh, to, to play with. I want companies that have a very strong balance sheet with a lot of cash and no or little debt. Uh, I want companies that have good returns on capital, free cash flow, earnings, the ability to raise prices, uh, optionality, or the ability to enter new products and new services, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I made a list of like 15 things that I really want in a good investment. At the same time, I said, all right, what, what are the things that I absolutely do not want uh, in, any, in any investment? Um, and this has been influenced greatly by my experience that I've had in the past with bad investments. So yeah. I don't want to invest in companies that I don't see that they have a moat, that they have no competitive advantage, or their moat is shrinking or under attack. I don't want to invest in companies that have heavy customer concentration, meaning that one or two customers accounts for an outsized portion of their revenue. Because if that customer leaves for whatever reason, then the entire thesis can get busted. Uh, I don't want to invest in companies that are losing money now and will likely do so for many years to come. I don't want to invest in companies that the industry, the whole industry is being disrupted. 
I don't want to invest in companies that have excessive levels of stock-based compensation. I don't want to buy companies that have lost to the market by a wide margin uh, throughout their history, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, had all the, I wrote all these things down, what I want, uh, what I don't want. And I put them out there saying, here's my, here's my checklist. And the first version of this was just like, you know, plus one if it had it, minus one if it didn't. And through feedback from others, which by the way is the most valuable thing about Twitter and The Motley Fool, it's, it's, it's getting feedback from other smart people. One of my, uh, one person that was working on this with me said, why don't you make this add up to be exactly 100 points? That way, um, it's, it, it's easy to tell quickly by looking at the number, yeah. how it ranks compared to others. And I was like, well, that's brilliant. And the other thing that I like about that is it forces me to not only make, to rank what, what things I'm looking for, but it, it forces me to weigh them against each other. Right. Yeah. And so wide moat is important, but is it more important than having a founder led management team? And is a founder led management team more important than having pricing power? So I had to weigh these figures, um, how, how I weighed them and assign points to them. And every time I added to one, I had to subtract from another. And I just love that it forced me to really hone in on the factors that I think are most important and subtract from those that, uh, so that aren't. So the, the system as it exists today, and it's always a work in progress. And if anybody listening has feedback or suggestions, please let me know because this, is, this gets better when, when people critique it. Um, so 100 points in total, and I've ranked 17 for a company's financials, 20 for a company's moat. So I think the moat is the most important. Uh, 18 about the company's potential, so where, where its growth potential. Uh, 10 for how it relates to its customers. Uh, 10 for whether or not it has recurring revenue and uh, pricing power. Uh, 14 for the management team and the company's culture. And 11 for how the stock price is performed and how well it, it meets Wall Street's uh, needs. Add all those together and that comes up to exactly 100. After I get a score based on the things that I like, I run it through something I call the gauntlet, which is like a thesis busting checklist mm -hmm. uh, that I had. And I subtract a lot of points for each of these that I, each like red or yellow flag uh, that I see. So uh, for example, if a company, a company had heavy customer concentration, uh, I would subtract 10 points, which would almost make a great company near uninvestable because right. that is such a huge hit. Yeah. Uh, if the industry itself was being disrupted, a uh, very similar uh, story. Uh, if, if it relied on outside factors, like we talked about before with Kinder Morgan, uh, another, I, I, I knocked like, uh, I knocked uh, 10 points or five points off for that. Um, so the most points you can lose in the gauntlet is 44. So therefore, the theoretical maximum score that you can get is 100, and the minimum score that you could get is negative uh, 44. And I just, okay. once I've done this with enough companies, I just set numbers for myself and basically say, I don't invest in any company unless it scores at least a 70. And if a company scores over an 80, I ask myself, why don't I own this? Yeah, I like that. And now one of the, one of the questions I have with anything like this is there, there's obviously some objectivity to it or subjectivity to it. So how do you make sure that you're staying consistent with your rankings, if that makes sense. So, you know, one day you might, for instance, value the financials or you might place more emphasis on the financials, give it a five when maybe in the past you've given it a four. So is there, is there a way that you've kind of calibrated that where it almost checks for your own biases on that, on that given day with that given company? 
or do you just maybe even create a range of potential scores from this checklist to kind of fact check yourself? Yeah, there, there is a legitimate counterpoint that I'm being too cutesy and I'm being too uh, focused on any given number. Like is a company that scores a 77 better than one that scores 74? Right. You could make the argument, no. Uh, they're, they're both in, the, in similar quality ranges. And a lot of these scores are subjective, but investing is subjective, period. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I understand that that is a, a limitation. And I don't focus as much on the absolute score as I do on the range. So like, you, like I said before, if a company's over 70, that is investable. Uh, if it's in the low 70s, it's probably a higher quality company than one that's in the high, uh, lower quality company than the one that's in the high 70s. Just like a company that's over 80 is probably a higher quality company than one that's in the 70s. Um, but yeah, there's no doubt that these scores are squishy. And if two people ranked them using my exact same system, the scores would be different. I don't think the range would be that far apart, uh, but right. the scores themselves would be, would be different. Yeah, so it's more about really getting that range right, where you're roughly right, whereas if it's a 70, if it's around 70, 80, you know roughly that this is a good business. It doesn't matter if it's a 71 or a 72. Um, I, think, I think that makes perfect sense. One of the things I do want to talk about, when you look at management and culture, there's, there's, there's two kind of scores that you give it. Um, you, know, you, can, you, can, you can rank a CEO between, I think, zero and four for soul in the game is, 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 is one of these factors. Talk to us about how you judge soul in the game. Is it, is it a lot of insider ownership? Is it incentivized um, you know, long-term goals like you want to see stock-based or you know, stock incentives based on shareholder-friendly goals? And then also... You incorporate Glassdoor ratings, which is something I think more people should should look at. Um, talk to us about why you incorporate Glassdoor and then the how you calculate soul in the game. Sure. So let's back up. Uh, so are management teams important? In my opinion, yes. Uh, is having a good corporate culture important? In my opinion, yes. Is it good that you have people that are in charge that also have a significant ownership of that stock? In my opinion, yes. Is it important that the company has, is on a mission and clearly communicates that mission to employees, to shareholders, to investors? In my opinion, yes. Those factors, I believe, are much more likely to make a company investable than one that is not. So how do you, again, score for that? How, how do you do it? The system that I've come up with uh, so far is based on four, uh, four inputs. The first one is soul in the game. And basically what that means is I want a manager that is in charge of the business that cares deeply about the mission of the company and the long-term financial health of the business more than they care about just running the show and getting a big paycheck. And that's a hard thing to screen for. It's mm -hmm. a hard thing to judge. It, it really is. In general, if a company is run by its founder, the odds are extremely high that the founder cares more about the long-term potential of the business than they do than they are there just to collect a paycheck. And the reason is, if you found a business, you have gone through so much pain to get the business to where it is today. Taking any company from nothing to public is incredibly hard, incredibly hard. And as a side effect, it's almost impossible to do that and not be fabulously rich. And if you're already fabulously rich, why on earth would you go through the hassle of running a company unless you actually cared about the long-term health of the company? You, yep. you, you, you are set for life. 
You don't have to work ever again. But yet, people like Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook are still in charge of their company, even though they could have retired years ago. Yeah. Why is that? Could be ego. That, that, is, that is something. Could be power. It also could be that they actually care about the long-term health and trajectory of the business more than they care about just collecting a big paycheck for themselves. So again, how do we judge that? Well, I, I score it from zero to four. If they're a founder, they automatically get a four. If they've been at the business for 15 or 10 or 15 years, they have more invested in that business than just, than just, than just looking at it as a career jumping opportunity. If, they've, mm -hmm. if they're a lifer, they probably care more about the long-term health of the business than somebody who's only been there for a year, uh, for example. Yeah. Uh, so I, I go by, by, were they there since day one or, or close to the founding if they weren't a founder? Uh, if not, how long have they, have, they, have they been there for? So if somebody is like a brand new CEO just was hired from an outside company and they're brand new to a business, I give them a zero. I don't care what their pedigree is. Do they have soul in the game and do they care about the business? It's really hard to say. If somebody wasn't a founder, but they've been at the business since the first year and they're literally 20 years in, the odds are pretty good that they think more like an owner than otherwise. Love it. I love it. And so when did, when did you start using Glassdoor in particular? Is that just to rank uh, the CEO's competency or, or also you do some sort of like NPS? You try, to, you try to find maybe like a net promoter score from you know, listening to employees talk about their own company. Yeah. So glassdoor.com, for those that don't know, is a rating school that employees can go on and they can rate their own company. Who knows a company better than the people that work there? Who knows what a management team is really like better than the people that are actually working uh, over there? So Glassdoor is a phenomenal tool to go in there and see what do people that actually work at this company feel like? Do they, do they believe in the CEO? Do they rate them highly? Or do they give them one star out of five and say, this, this person's doing a terrible job? Are the employees that work there optimistic about the long-term trajectory of the company? Or do they think that it's just a, a dumpster fire that's waiting to uh, explode? Glassdoor ratings are not perfect by, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, they can be manipulated, especially if there's a low number of reviews. And people typically don't go on Glassdoor unless they have extreme feelings one way or the other. It's right, like any exactly. review. It's yep. like any review online. If you got fired because of something dumb, you're going to go on and say one star. Uh, if, uh, if you were just newly hired and you just got a big stock grant, you're probably going to go on and give it five stars. So like anything, there's always nuance and you have to read through the reviews. But Overall, I would rather invest in a company that with a very highly rated, that gets four stars or more on glassdoor.com and has a CEO approval rating above 80% than one that has two stars and a CEO approval rating under 30%, for, for example. So that is one site that you can use. There are some others like Indeed um, in her site, employee ratings for use, but Glassdoor is the biggest and most well-known. Do you ever use, and this is something that I found just doing some research, trying to find out more about like taking an MPS approach to companies. Do you ever use comparably.com? Have you ever heard yep. of that? Yep. That's yeah. another one. Yeah. Comparably is a great one that, that, that focuses more on, you know, employee net promoter score, but it's, it's kind of that same idea where if you're, if, if you're looking for soul in the game or you're looking for culture, I think cross-referencing glassdoor.com with, with comparably. And also, like you said, Brian, if there's one to two ratings and it's one star and five star, there's really not much you can glean from that. So it's also a function of how densely populated those, those ratings are. Mm -hmm. I, I think 
the best way for people to kind of understand this whole checklist is really if you walked us through um, in, a, in, a, in a soup to nuts fashion, I know we've got about 30 minutes left and basically in a soup to nuts fashion, uh, this checklist with one of your top holdings right now, which is uh, Meli, M-E-L-I. So walk us through that thesis through the lens of this checklist, if you can. I mean, it doesn't have to be super simple because I know that would take probably another hour if we did, but just on a high level, Walk us through Melly, through this checklist, through your gauntlet, and then how it comes out on the other side. Okay, sure. Um, and I'm going to preempt this by saying the score was done uh, a little while ago. Mm -hmm. So it might not be the most up-to-date because Mercado Libre, M-E-L-I, which by the way is my number one holding, it's grown to become my number one holding, um, was profitable uh, a few years ago. However, they have purposely reinvested everything into back into the business to drive a couple of their uh, new initiatives. And that has caused them to dip back into the red uh, on the bottom line. So again, these numbers are not a perfect indication. And yep. that is a limitation of the system because businesses change. And yep. I'm doing these rankings when I'm about to buy and they are not static numbers. They do, they do change over time. So with that caveat uh, in mind, We'll start at the top. So Mercado Libre, M-E-L-I. So the first category I look at is the financials. Uh, so I start with a balance sheet. I want to see lots of cash, little debt, zero to five. Uh, Mercado Libre gets a five here the last time I checked. Lots of cash, very little debt. Uh, number two, gross margin. I want to see a gross margin that is above 50% and if it's, and, and if it's rising. And if it's above 80% uh, and rising, I give, it, uh, I give it three. So when I look at Mercado Libre's gross margin, uh, I see it's below 50%, uh, but, it, but, it was, but it was rising. Uh, so I get one point out of three there. Okay, number three, returns on capital. So I check return on assets, return on equity, and return on invested capital. Again, I want to see high numbers above 10 or 15%, and I also give more points for the rising. Mercado Libre is still on the fence with earnings per share. So therefore, its return on capital are all negative. I give mm -hmm. it a zero even though that that number could improve dramatically in the future once they focus on profitability. Interesting. So you Next. do, so sorry, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but you do, I guess, I guess what's, I guess what's important about this is that you're not necessarily uh, influenced by what you think the future of the business will look like. Everything's based on the current. So even though you've got a reasonable expectation that the company is going to generate lots of cash, lots of earnings, and it's going to have higher returns on invested capital as of right now, you're still scoring that as zero just for Correct. the sake of consistency. Interesting. And, and ask yourself this, if, uh, if you're deciding between two investments right now today, would you prefer one that has high returns on invested capital or negative returns on invested capital? If that was your only metric, if that was I would want the one that well, yeah. high, high return on invested capital. Yeah. Uh, right? So doesn't it make sense to score that one with some points and the other one with none? I guess, but I guess, I guess just, to, just, just to push back a little bit, and, and I agree, it's just obviously we can't see the future, but if that, if that one business with the high returns on invested capital mean reverts over time back to something lower, and then the one with lower returns on invested capital mean reverts higher or just bucks the trend and, 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 and just starts growing parabolically, I guess that might influence my current decision. But I guess if it's just purely quantitative, then yes, I would take the one that's got higher returns without necessarily discounting what I think is going to happen in the future. I hope that makes sense. It does, but I will throw this back against you and say that, that that's a completely uh, valid point. But yeah. if you are applying asterisks to each of these points, then the entire checklist becomes invalid. That's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> because, <laughs> you, I mean, again, if, if you wanted to do that subjectively, you could make them a case that Mercado Libre is 100. 
Yeah. And, 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 and it has nothing wrong with it. Well, that's not exactly a useful, um, useful number. So you yep. have to be, you have to be brutally honest and look at the, the facts as they exist today, even if you want them to be something else. Or that's at least that's, that's the system that, that, uh, that I applied. Awesome. And by the way, all those optionality and future potential, that's offset in another category. Perfect. So, all right. That's not a return on invested capital. Right now, it's a zero. Okay. Yep. All right. I will not interrupt anymore. So keep going. Sorry. I just, I just, I just had to, I just had to question that just to, just for the sake of me getting smarter. So go ahead. And feedback is always welcome. Uh, okay. So number three, uh, free cash flow. I want to see free cash flow that is both positive and growing fast. Mercado Libre has that at the time that I did this. So that's a three out of three. And earnings per share. I want to see earnings per share that is both positive and growing fast. Mercado Libre does not have that. Therefore, that's a zero out of three. So financially, Mercado Libre scores uh, nine out of a potential 15. Uh, 17, excuse me, a nine out of potential uh, 17. So not great. All right, let's move on to the moat. This is a category that has a maximum of 20 points. In my opinion, Mercado Libre is protected by the network effect. And that is something that marketplaces like Mercado Libre have going for them. The most buyers want to go to the place with the most sellers. The most sellers want to go to the place with the most buyers. Mercado Libre has an incredibly strong network effect working in its favor. Mm-hmm. The most points you can get on my moat score is 15. And in my opinion, Mercado Libre's network effect is so strong that it gets a 15 just off of that. You could also make the cut. Um, you could also make the argument that it has switching costs, that it has brand name uh, going for it, um, mm-hmm. et cetera. However, I'm not giving the company any points for that because the most you can get on the moat is 15. And I think it maxes out on, on network effect just off of that alone. So oh. I don't even check the rest because I'm like, yep, wide moat, uh, 15, and I, and, I, and I move on. So is that then your favorite and most, uh, I, guess, I guess, most requested moat from a company? You look for network effects. Yeah, it's it's one of the hardest ones to beat once 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 you have it established. Right. Um, so I, I just want to see that a company has has a moat going for it, and you can get the either by having an incredibly strong one of these, or you can have a number of a, a number of weak ones that combine to give you a strong moat. So if you had weak network effects, weak switching costs, and a weak uh, brand brand score, uh, those could combine to give you a wide moat. For example. Got it. Yep. So Mercado Libre, and then I want to say, is Mercado Libre's moat getting narrower, stable, or widening? Mercado Libre is widening its moat. No doubt in my mind about that. In my opinion, Mercado Libre gets a 20 out of 20 for moat. Okay, let's talk about uh, potential. So potential here uh, has a maximum score of 18. First thing is optionality. Does Mercado Libre have the ability to launch new products or new services in new markets that are unrelated to its core uh, platform? The answer there is yes. This company has a history uh, of rolling out um, a payments network. They just launched an asset management uh, business. They're launching a shipping uh, business. This company has more optionality than almost any company I've ever seen. So the max score you can get here is seven. I give them a seven. Number two organic growth runway. I want to see companies that can organically, again, with homegrown products or services, grow their revenue at a 15% rate or more for their foreseeable future. Mercado Libre is blowing that out of the water. They're growing way faster than that. So they get a four out of four on that one. Number three, I want the company to be a top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry 
or an industry disruptor? Is Mercado Libre the top dog and first mover in e-commerce in Latin America? No doubt about it. Three points out of three. Finally, I want companies that have operating leverage ahead of them. Operating leverage is the ability to grow your profits faster than you grow your revenue by improving your margins over time. That's called operating leverage, and it is a highly desirable business characteristics. If you're losing money today, you automatically have a lot of operating leverage ahead of you. Right. If you're already at peak margin, then operating leverage is behind you. I want to invest in companies that have that ahead of them. Yep. Is Mercado Libre, which isn't profitable on an EPS basis, have that ahead of them? Yes. So the company gets an 18 out of 18 on this score. They're uh, killing my check is. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Number, number, th uh, number three. Well, that's more than offsetting the financial weaknesses. I hope yeah. that you can see so far. Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay. Number, th number, uh, number four, uh, customers. I want to think about the relationship between the business and its customers, because if customers aren't happy or if customers have too much power, that can kill, that can kill uh, the thesis. So with Mercado Libre, does Mercado Libre have to spend a lot of money to acquire customers or are customers coming in through word of mouth? Now, the way that I calculate that, because it's a squishy thing, is by taking gross profit and divi uh, dividing by the amount of money that is spent on advertising, sales, and marketing. You can't always get that number because not every company breaks it out like that. But in my opinion, Mercado Labor is growing far more by word of mouth than it is by spending heavily on advertising. So the most points you can get here is five. I give them four, four okay. out of five on that one. Yep. Next, I think about the customers. Is a customer dependent on this company and will continue to spend even in a recession? Or are they going to stop their spending altogether when a recession hits? Well, we're in a recession right now and Mercado Libre spending jumped. It increased. It grew yeah. faster during, during COVID-19. That's not exactly a normal recession uh, from, from other ones. However, it does tell me that this business is more recession-proof than cyclical. So I gave them a four out of five on that one. So they got an eight out of 10 relationship with their customers. Uh, number five, company specific factors. Specifically, I'm looking at uh, revenue. Um, I wanna see that the company has a lot of recurring revenue. Recurring meaning they get a customer and that customer spends over and over and over again. That is far more attractive than a, than a company that gets a customer, spends once and then doesn't buy again from that company from 10 years. Right. When a company joins Mercado Libre, are they more likely to buy over and over again? Yes, there's no doubt about it. They use Mercado Libre, they use Mercado Pago, they, they probably use the asset management. This is a recurring revenue business. I gave them four out of five uh, on that score. And you can make the argument they should be a five out of five and I wouldn't disagree with you. Uh, the second point I look at is pricing power. Does Mercado Libre have the ability to raise prices on its customers and, and retain, retain them all? I think the answer is yes. I don't think it has infinity pricing power uh, like some other companies could, but I do think that if Mercado Libre raised prices that its customers would not leave. Now the company is not doing that because they're in a, a land grab mode right now, but I believe that they could. So again, I gave them four out of five. So that's an eight out of 10 on what I call company specific uh, factors. All right, now let's go to management. So again, 14 points uh, in total here. Uh, so soul in the game, it's run by its founder, four out of four. Inside ownership, very high. I don't have the number in front of me, but I know that CEO founder, Marcos Galperin, uh, I believe his name, owns a sizable amount of Mercado Libre stock. I gave him a three out of three. 
Uh, the Glassdoor ratings were glowing on this company. Again, with the caveat that Glassdoor is an imperfect uh, metric, especially for a company like this, which is based uh, in Latin America, but they were still good overall. I gave them a four out of four. And mm -hmm. finally, is the company's mission statement, is it simple, inspirational, and optionable? Yes, yes, yes. I gave mm -hmm. them a three out of three. On this score, they scored a 14 out of 14. Wow. Okay. Finally, let's talk about the stock. Uh, I want to see companies that have beaten the market over the last five years, or at least since, or at least since they, they came public. Mercado Libre, if you've ever pulled up this company's stock chart, it doesn't get any prettier. It's, it's parabolic. Been up into the right. They it's have parabolic. crushed the market. Winners keep on winning. Losers keep on losing. Mercado Libre is a winner. It gets a four out of four. Uh, next, I want to see the company is using capital on behalf of shareholders. So is it buying back stock? Is it paying a rising dividend? Or is it repaying debt? Mercado Libre is doing none of those things. So it gets a zero out of three. That's okay, given where this company is in its growth phase. Yep. Uh, but again, in a pure vacuum, would you rather have a company that's buying back stock or not? I'd rather have one that's buying back stock. So right. they get a zero. Uh, finally, I look at the company versus uh, Wall Street's estimates. Great companies are good at managing Wall Street's expectations. And every, every quarter, Wall Street comes out and says, this is what we expect the company to earn. And great companies blow away those earnings. Just blow them uh, away. Right. Uh, this number they have on here is actually outdated, so I'm going to update it right now. So I'm looking at Mercado Libre's last four earnings reports, and I see one they blew away, uh, one they beat by a little, one they missed by a little, and one they missed by a lot. So yeah. that is a uh, plus two, minus two. That's a net score of zero. Right. So I, I, ideally, the company beat its earnings each of the last four quarters. All right, let's add all that up. Yep. Uh, add all those scores together, and Mercado Libre gets an 81 out of 100. Which is, which is so interesting because when you, when you just focus on, I guess, the financials, and just, and just going back to our conversation on you know, the negative earnings per share and the low return on, return on invested capital, if you just focus on that and kind of have tunnel vision, you're going to miss all of the things that they scored great on. And you're just, you're just going to completely miss those. And you're only going to care about that little moment where they're not earning right now and they're not generating cash. But what, but what you're saying is that even if you include those, if you look at the whole picture and you look at it from a, like an actual business perspective, from competitive advantages, from owner insider management, switching costs, network effects, if you look at the whole thing, then this short-term temporary issue in earnings and you know, negative, negative earnings, it just doesn't matter because the company is still that good. Not that it doesn't matter. But as of right now, it, 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 it matters, but it's overwhelmed by the positives. That, yes. That's, the, that's yeah. the key point. And it's yeah, also, again, again, worth reiterating that these are point in time numbers. If Mercado Libre becomes profitable on a net income basis uh, and focuses on optimizing itself for profitability, its return on invested capital will skyrocket as well as its net income. That right there could add six points. To the score. Not to mention, if they if they blow away their earnings reports for four quarters in a row, that could add four more points to the score. Mm -hmm. So they have the potential to increase this number by ten points. And that's almost like a can slim method too, from 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 Bill O'Neill, where you're looking at kind of earnings expectations and 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 growth. And I wonder, were you were you ever influenced by Bill O'Neill's teachings and can slim and all that? Yes. Um, I this checklist was not made in a vacuum. Uh, yeah. I I looked for every possible checklist that I could get my hands on hmm. and hand, hand picked from them. Uh, so this was, this was not me being brilliant and thinking about all of this on my own. This is me borrowing heavily from other people. Do you ever try to run this checklist through 
let's call them IPOs, like for instance, Vroom.com or something, or like some, some, some new IPO, do you, do you have to make adjustments based on, um, you know, the fact that it's an IPO? So obviously you're not going to have four quarters of earnings and, 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 and there might be some things on the financial side where you're just not going to be able to fully judge because just the lack of financial data. Do you, do, you, do you still apply this to IPOs and newly listed companies? Absolutely. I do. And I don't make adjustments. I, if the company doesn't have four quarters of earnings being history, it just gets a zero. It gets a zero. Yeah. <laughs> Again, these are point in time numbers based on what we know today. I'm not, I'm not going to estimate and give a company rosier numbers just because of what I think it could do. It has to be rigorous and consistent. Otherwise the whole system breaks. I like it. I like this. And I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally going to steal this at some point and run it, run it my, run it myself. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just really interested to see how I come up with this course because each person has something that they care about a little bit more or that they think is a little bit more important. So, you know, one person might think network effects are more important and they, you know, they, they see a network effect and they give it a 15. Other people might see switching costs and they give that a 15. Um, it's just, it's just really cool. You can, you can kind of make your own within, within the overall structure of it. Um, so, you know, I'm going to listen to this a couple times just to listen how, or just to, just to hear how you went through that with, with Ricardo Libre. Now I want to finish this discussion. We've got about 10 minutes. This is going to be perfect. You really like to focus on health. We, did, we didn't go through the gauntlet yet. Do you want to do that too? For oh Libre? yeah, yeah. Because we're not yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. I keep forgetting. It's like, we did all this. It's like, but wait, there's more. Then we're not done. Yeah. That was all the good stuff. Yeah. That, that's the 81. That's not the total score. That okay, yeah. is, that is, okay, now we're going to go through our checklist to find any yellow or red flags. Okay, perfect. This is actually the most important part of this thing. Um, so yeah, Correct. go ahead. Sorry. Yep, well, not, go ahead. Uh, what's the most important part? You can't take any of this out. Otherwise, the whole thing uh, yeah. doesn't work. But anyway, so a pre-gauntlet score, we got 81. Stellar. Fantastic. Yep. Yep. However, we're going to start going through the bad stuff. Okay, number one, any accounting irregularities. If there is, I subtract 10 points. I don't see any. Zero. Uh, zeros are good. Zero is the best possible case scenario here. By this the way. is like golf at this point. <laughs> Correct. So the lower score, the better. Yes. Uh, number two, customer concentration. Mercado Libre has millions of customers, zero customer concentration. Number three, industry disruption. Is the industry being disrupted? No, they are the disruptor. Zero. Number four, outside forces. Do they, require, do they rely on commodity prices, interest rates, a high stock price, a strong economy? I'm giving them a zero. You could make the argument that the functioning governments in the places that they, they run and, you know, um, they're in some Latin American countries, which are not stable. Uh, you could make the argument that they're reliant on those economies to continue to grow. I'm saying zero. You'll see why later, but just, throw, just throwing it in there. Mm -hmm. uh, number three, uh, number five, whatever. Uh, is it being a big market loser? Has it lost to the market over the last couple of years? No, it's crushed it. Zero. Yep. Binary event. Do they have a legal uh, challenge coming up ahead or a patent? Is a key patent being challenged? And if they lose, is that as, or an FDA approval? If that happens, does that bust the thesis? No, zero. Do they have extreme dilution? And I, I say extreme dilution is more than 5% annually, just going to employees and management teams. Got it. No. Uh, that's one thing, one, one thing to pull out about foreign companies like Mercado Libre is they are much more stingy with stock-based compensation in those countries than they are in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, number eight, uh, do they grow by acquisition, partially, exclusively, or none? None. This is all organic growth, a zero. Do they have 
overly complicated financials? Could, could a intermediate level uh, accountant decipher their numbers? Uh, the answer is yes, zero. Uh, do they have antitrust concerns? Are there, are there calls for this company to be broken up by the government? No, zero. Headquarter risk, this is an interesting one. Do they operate in a country, in, in a country that is high risk and has, has the potential for something bad to happen? Mercado Libre calls Argentina home. However, they operate primarily in Brazil, uh, uh, Argentina, uh, and, and Mexico. Uh, I'm going to say yes. They do have headquarter uh, risk. Yeah. So I subtract three points for the headquarter risk. And, number, and, and the last one is currency risk. So do do, do is the majority of their sales derived in countries outside of the U.S. So when they're translated into U.S. dollars, the, the currency has a big impact on the numbers. Yes, 100% of their revenue is generated outside the U.S. So yeah. I subtract two points uh, for that. So pre-gauntlet score of 81 minus five points for the gauntlet. I get a 76 uh, for Mercado Libre with knowing that it could, in time, go up to the mid-80s. Uh, if, if, they, if they ace the things that they were uh, doing wrong. So Mercado Libre is firmly in my above 70, which makes it an investable idea. Now, how often do you run a company through the checklist after you first run it? So do you do it maybe like every year, every, every couple quarters? Is it, is it a set sort of time frame? Yeah, I don't have a set period for it. I typically do it once up front. And then again, a company like, so take a company like Mercado Libre, a 76. How much is it going to move? Well, the last time I did it uh, was a few years ago and I got a 79. So it's, it's wow, gone okay. down a little bit. And the thing yeah. that changed it there was the, um, that they have not hit their recent er earnings results. That's the major, that's the major mover uh, on that one. So yeah. I'm not like fanatical about updating it annually. Um, I, cause again, I'm more interested in a range than I am in an exact score. But, um, if people want to do these for me and, <laughs> and tweet at me <laughs> with updated scores, boy, well, well, I appreciate the help. <laughs> That'd be funny. I mean, look, that's, that's, that's exactly what I'm going to do at some point next week is I'm going to, I'm going to pick a name and run it, run it through and, and kind of, and kind of let you, let you dissect. I think, I think this is just such a cool idea and I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that you got to come on and, 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 and share it with, with, with our listeners. I think it's great. I'm going to, I'm going to end. So, okay. So now we, we went through everything. We, we went through the gauntlet. We've got about, uh, you know, five, five, six minutes left here. You love focusing on healthcare and tech, um, specifically those, those two industries. What are some names now, if you just want to wet our palates for, for, for our listeners, what are some names in these spaces that you're currently diving into that you think could be special or, you know, just, just some interesting companies that uh, is occupying your time right now? Uh, okay. So these, again, are potential investment ideas or ones yeah. that I'm just starting to research? Uh, it could be, it could be both. Just really, just really anything that you're excited about that you think could make it into your portfolio. Okay. Uh, well, I always, again, I'm, I run this checklist through hundreds of companies at this time, and it really helps me to, to focus my uh, attention. Um, and the bulk of my assets are in the highest scoring companies that I've ever found, not to mention companies that have just been stellar uh, long-term investments. But since it's, it's more fun to talk about small companies that have a lot of potential, um, one company that is very high on my research list is Datadog, uh, mm -hmm. a software as a service company that deals with um, IT, IT monitoring. They are crushing everything right now. They are growing like incredibly fast and they scored an 83 on wow. my checklist, which is well into the 
why don't I own this uh, range? Um, <laughs> right. So just, just that, that seems to be an incredibly uh, strong uh, and exciting company. So that would be a tech one that I'm interested in. On the smaller side of things, uh, a company that I recently stumbled across or a couple of uh, months ago, and uh, it's a very tiny company. Uh, it's called Semler uh, Scientific. Uh, they are a fascinating software company that is in the diagnostics market uh, for people with peripheral artery disease. Uh, fascinating business. And even though it's very small and trades over the counter, so that's a caveat, this is a very yeah. illiquid stock. It scored 76 on my, on my checklist. Wow. And, um, and that's, again, this is a small stock that's hard to research. Like I don't even think there's any glass door ratings on yeah. this company. It's so, it's so small. And this is a $300 million uh, company, but that's one that as I've dug into it, I really like it. And again, it's scored, it's scored a 76 uh, on my list. So I have taken a small position in that company and I look forward to following that for, for years to come. What's the, what's the ticker there? SMLR. SMLR. Okay. Awesome. All right. This is this 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 has been just a great podcast. Like I've learned I've learned so much, and I think I think people are going to learn a lot. And let's let's just kind of get to the last last couple of questions I ask everybody. Um, first off, where where can people go to find out more about you? I know that you have a have a pretty good presence on Twitter. You've got about thirty five thousand followers. Um, and just I guess I guess just a question I have for you on a personal note is how how have you managed to grow that following? Um, you know what are what are what are some things that you've done that have that have helped grow your Twitter account? Uh, yeah, so I've been on Twitter for many years, but my following has really grown exponentially uh, in 2020. And I think I found the best Twitter hack possible, which is be worth following. There you go. That's revolutionary. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So people, so so people can go to Twitter. What's your what's your? It's it's what app, Brian Feraldi? Yes. Okay. Awesome. And then, um, they can go to, do you, you still write for the Motley Fool. So can they just go and search your name at the Motley Fool or what's, what's the deal yep. there? Google my name and the word articles. If you want uh, to see my articles, although I don't write nearly as much as I used to, I spend several hours per week on Fool Live, which is their ongoing live stream that they have. Um, and we have tons of great guests coming on and it's basically eight hours of day of, uh, of Fool TV. And we do deep dives on companies and stuff like that. So if you're at all interested in investing, I can't recommend Fool Live enough. You do have to be a premium subscriber uh, to do it, but um, the education that you get and the ability to connect and ask questions of uh, the Motley Fool staff, it's, it's an unbelievable experience. I wish it existed when I first started out. Awesome. And now last question. It's the same question I ask everybody. If you could have dinner with one person from the past or present, who would it be and why? Elon Musk. No doubt <laughs> you about know, it's, it. It's funny. No <laughs> one's actually said Musk. I think, I think someone said Nikolai Tesla before, which, you know, I guess if you want to make that comparison, you can, but why Musk? Um, because he's a genius. He's a forward thinker. He's running so many. I think he's one of the most important humans on the planet right now. And whether or not you like him or not, you can't deny his influence on society and humanity. And I would really want to, uh, well, I know so much about him and his companies, uh, but I would really want to dig into how he thinks about life percolating on Mars and getting to interplanetary. He is such a fascinating uh, a person. I think he's Edison and Jobs um, and P.T. Barnum all rolled up into one. Wow, that is high praise. That's high praise. I've got I've got a buddy that's a uh, he works he works at NASA and he's just a total fanboy of Elon Musk. So he's gonna he's gonna enjoy listening to that. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate 
all the knowledge bombs you just dropped on us. I look forward to talking to you again. Sounds great. Thanks for the invite.